2: Bloomberg is now on your dashboard with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. It gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash
3: podcast. All right, Herman Chan's in here, and he covers the regional banks for Bloomberg Intelligence. I don't know why he's in here. I don't know why we got to talk to this guy. But Herman, what's happening with the regional banks? Because I feel like... A, sh- a huge shoe is about to uh, drop in terms of, I don't know, commercial real estate loans, just higher rates, credit card stuff. Uh, give us a sense of what's happening with the with the regional banks, and is the FDIC concerned?
1: Right. So, uh, the sentiment for for regional banks has been poor since March and April after the failures of F, uh, of SVB and Signature, First Republic, and shares haven't really rebounded since that time um there's been concerns on which you
3: told us was probably going to happen right. they we're not going to rebound because this right. is a long-term earnings we're, we're, we're facing
1: a longer-term earning issue from margins because of yep. higher funding costs and higher interest rates. Banks aren't lending that much because they're focused on building capital because of tougher capital rules. And then you, you mentioned uh, commercial real estate and office CRE, a potential shooter drop there uh, potentially next year with higher loan losses. So the sentiment has been poor, uh, but also uh, you've seen a bid recently over the past couple of weeks uh, as... Uh, Inflation pressures seem to be easing, so the thought of oh, yeah. interest rate cuts are are positive for for banks. And actually, the regionals ha- have rebounded about fifteen percent since their lows yeah. earlier in October. I look at
3: M and T Bank as my proxy. I know mm-hmm. I know there's an ETF out there that is probably much better, but I just like looking at M and T. It's a yeah. quality regional bank, up fourteen percent off of that uh, low back uh, in late October.
1: That's right. So, so there, there is a bit of uh, an inverse relationship with longer-term treasury yields and, and regional bank stocks. So that's something to look out for. In terms of the FDIC, um, the the organization is a expected the vote on a special assessment to replenish their deposit insurance fund which was hit from the bank failures earlier than the year so the largest banks in the United States are set to uh, have a, a hit in the fourth quarter in terms so the of lar- like JP
3: Morgan's got to pay for the regional banks <laughs> yeah and, it's, and, it's, and
2: and by the way was it a was it an industry-wide problem mm-hmm. or um, were the managers at SVB group just asleep at the wheel
1: SVB was a bit asleep at the wheel. I would concede that. They were passed
2: out cold, right? (laughs) Blood alcohol content, like four. Not Um, really
1: focused on interest rate risk uh, at that.
2: Well, um, why would you focus on interest rate risk as the head of a bank, right? (laughs) Who cares about that? And
1: now Jamie Dimon has to pay the tab. Right. He
2: must be very unhappy
1: about that. Yeah, the the surviving banks are paying for the sins of the the guys that that had the failed institution. So it is how the industry works for better or for worse. Um,
2: no, really? You think SVB Group would bail out J- uh, JP
1: Morgan? <laughs> well, M&T, like, like Paul said, is bailing out um, yeah, SVB as well. So everybody has to pay their fair share.
2: Full disclosure, Herman Chan loves M&T. <laughs> well, he used to work there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> in investor relations. That's right. I yeah. Know. And you are, you're a proud mid-market kind of regional bank. Customer. I mean, I bank at the Huntington uh, yeah, sure you in, 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 in Columbus, Ohio. He doesn't. Right. Huge fan. Look, because... As a local, I've grown up there. Generations of my family have banked there, so you well, know. Miller name carries some weight there. Well, or the the, the, the uh, benefit is when times are tough, they work with us. You right. know, whereas a bigger bank would say, "We'll see you later, sign right." Sure. Huntington will will stick with us and work with us because that's just how more localized banks right. work. So, but there are four thousand of these mm-hmm.
3: uh, regional community banks out mm-hmm. there. Um, if I put my M and A hat on there, I feel like that's an industry ripe for consolidation. Right? Is that is that in fact the case? And if so, what would be the catalyst?
1: Yeah, uh, the regionals have talked about uh, M and being a factor later on, but not quite over the next you know, one year time horizon. Uh, you have to remember that uh, higher interest rates um, are are and are a factor, and when banks do emanate, they have to mark-to-market the the target's balance sheet. So, uh, And marking-to-market means that they have to set uh, the current value on both the loans and, and, and assets and deposits, and that can create a hole in the acquirer's balance sheet. So they're waiting for maybe rates to come down a bit so they don't have this tangible look value hits. Uh, the second factor is that regulation is still up in the air. The Biden administration has been a bit uh, reticent for bank m a despite some of the pressures earlier in the year. That seems to be easing, but there's still a lot of questions on that front.
3: All right. So the commercial real estate, how big of an issue is that mm-hmm. for the banks? And when will we see it, I guess? By the out? way, you
2: know where the phrase waiting for the other shoe to drop comes from. No, but you told me. I it's forget. because back in the days when New York City was filled with these tenements, mm-hmm. um, the walls and the ceilings and floors were so thin that you could hear when somebody would come home from work and take off his shoes. Okay. So, you knew when one dropped, you were about <laughs> to hear the next shoe drop.
1: <laughs> OK, very good. Well, you learn something new every day. <laughs> I think it's great know.
2: that it's tied to real estate, right? right. Because the next shoe to drop is also tied to real estate.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, so on, in terms of commercial real estate, it, it creates more headline risk, in my view, than actual potential losses for, for at least the regional banks that I cover. Um, we're talking about two to four or five percent of their total loan portfolio is tied to office commercial real estate. Who who owns that stuff then? um, It could be smaller uh, regionals. It could be, you know, securitized uh, CMBS. Because I'm thinking about, I'm I'm going to go back to my
3: lipstick building on 3rd Avenue and 54th Street here in Manhattan. Right. At some point, that thing's going to reprice, and it's going to reprice at a big discount, and the equity is going to come out of Mm -hmm. that thing Mm and whoever's got the mortgage
2: against that
1: right
3: is gonna have to do something
1: yeah you're gonna have to take I a big just wonder who
3: owns like those <laughs> kinds of commercial real estate mortgage There's my brother size. by the
2: way works in the lipstick building it's such a cool building
3: yeah i think it's awesome yeah I think so Bernie hopefully Maydalf
2: they do Maydalf
1: okay be yeah. As well. oh yeah yeah uh but already made is there yeah so um it, it is a a headline issue but i i do think it's going to be manageable but you will inevitably see losses uh, for the regional banks and th- they are already uh, booking reserves against potential losses uh, expected over the next few years all
3: right so but if i'm looking at m&t bank i mean so when do i say the earnings risk is behind mm-hmm. this industry i'm looking at the next year's numbers and it's not then i mean they're still going down right um i guess in 2025 is when you expect earnings to rebound for this sector
1: yeah i i think uh at we we've written a note uh, actually today on net interest margins potentially stabilizing, and for most of the banks that I covered, that's will happen by the first quarter of next year if interest rates even stay where they are today. So that's positive. Uh, you're not getting any benefit from loan growth, though, so so that's an issue. Uh, there's sticker shock in terms of how interest rates are for both. Uh, commercial borrowers and 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 retail customers as well so that's going to be a factor for the foreseeable future but in terms of net interest margins that that stabilization will help you know reduce some of the pressures on nii net interest income for the regionals all right man
3: herman chan you're the man you cover all the regional banks for bloomberg intelligence we appreciate getting a few minutes of your time coming here on our bloomberg interactive brokers Uh, Studio here, still a little bit of headwinds there for the regional banks. But again, I'm looking at some of these earnings estimates out there. They start turning really noticeably positive in terms of growth rates in 2025 for some of the regional banks. So who knows? Uh, That could be an interesting
0: area.
4: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing it's the passion to keep investing it's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us and that is where success meets success find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. that's s-t-i-f-e-l.com Stiefel nicholas and company incorporated member s-i-p-c and n-y-s-e
5: you're listening to the team our Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All
3: right, let's do a little C-suite conversation here. Let's talk healthcare, biotech, cancer. Helen Sabzaveri joins us. She is the CEO of Presogen. Presogen is a publicly traded company. It lists on NASDAQ, PGEN. Uh, is the symbol for, uh, to type into your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, Helen, thanks so much for joining us here. Thank you. Um, talk to us about presigen. What do you guys do? Where is your focus right now?
6: So we have been focusing on a cell and gene therapy and really bringing it to the next level. I think what uh, we know that this is gonna be the cutting edge for the next decades. And it is working for treatments limited in a hematological oncology setting. Okay,
3: so we're talking cancer here. Yes, okay. cancer
6: setting. And however, the problems are basically the access to the patient, the cost that it's relevant, half a million dollar tag prices for the treatments. And you can only get it once. PreSagen is bringing it to the next level. What we are doing is manufacturing overnight at the fraction of the cost. Done at the hospital, so you don't need centralized manufacturing.
3: So you make and it. You make it at the hospital.
6: At the hospital, okay, and accessible to the patient, and they can receive repeated doses because the cost is so much lower, and it can be produced overnight, and wow. it's precise to the patient, uh, because we use their own cells to modify them overnight and infuse them back to the patient. So this is why we say we are bringing the therapy to the next level.
2: How how much better are my chances now of surviving if I get cancer um, today, say, versus 10 or 20 years ago?
6: Definitely the field has been coming along in uh, various immunological uh, therapies and now with the cell and gene therapy. So the chances of survival is much higher the percentages is still is not up where we need to be. When we look at our therapies, we are in 20, 30 percent response rates. We need to do much better than that. And this is one of the aspects that, for instance, even the cell and gene therapy right now in the field of cancer, for the liquid cancers, they do well in some of them, but they have not had any effects on a solid tumors, and this is where we come in as well, because now our Technology can address both sides overnight with the much lower price tag for the patient and is specific to the patient cancer. And I think that's very important because then you avoid treatments that you know it will not work.
2: I'm gonna ask an ignorant question. So pretend I'm a complete moron. (laughs) Are you there? Uh, you're not. (laughs) Why haven't we cured this disease yet? I mean, we've been throwing hundreds of millions I mean, our boss throws billions of dollars at this disease for decades. And there are a lot of people out there, probably not medical professionals, but people who think, you know what, this disease is simply too profitable to the healthcare uh, industry to actually cure.
6: I think the issues with the cancer is multifaceted and the mechanism of escape of your own Cells from your own army, which is your immune cells, is very complex. And the reason that over the years you see we have moved the bar from chemo to now immunological immunotherapies and now to your own cells recognizing it. And this is exactly what we do. We are bringing out your own cells there and train your army back and we reinfuse it back to you so now they can recognize the enemy from within, which is your tumor cells. And I think that's where the difference is. And what we have to do is obviously make this much more accessible to the patient very rapidly because the patients don't have enough time and the current cell and gene therapies will not address that. And also treat a much larger patient population, which is the precision platform with the Ultra-Cart-T does that overnight at the hospital.
3: So where are you in the development of your company, presigen I mean, are you, are you guys? Do you have your product, or your, or your pharmaceutical in the in the marketplace yeah. yet?
6: So, we, what we have is that our ultra car is already in the clinical trials across the United States, and we have been reporting not only the safety but efficacy. For instance, in AML patients that they don't have more than a few months to leave, and we have shown complete and partial responses in these patients in ovarian cancer, as well as triple negative breast cancers that we are moving, but also precigen is not just the ultra car company. We have uh, other gene therapies, modalities that addresses the HPV cancers. And actually, we are really excited because the 2024 is going to be a breakout for a as we are bringing uh, the first drug for a recurrent respiratory papillomatosis, which are the benign tumors in the trachea and throat of the patients. And the FDA has given us the um, accelerated approval, and we are moving toward the commercialization by 2024. which now changes the paradigm for our patients and for our investors. I mean,
3: are you, are you? A t- I'm just looking at your stock, it's down 33% this year. I have no idea why it's got a market cap of $250
2: million. It traded at $65 a share in 2015, which was admittedly years it before was, you came yes. into the company, but it's trading for a dollar now.
6: It was a different company. And yeah. I think what we have done is since 2020 that I have become the CEO, we have changed the company and focused mainly on health, and in three years we have moved the platform from a discovery to the scaling up and to the commercial, and we just received not only the true designations from FDA, but accelerated approval, and the company by next year is moving toward the first commercialization of the drug in the HPV field, which as you can imagine, it's a huge field in cancer as well as in infectious diseases.
3: So- are we ever going to get to a point where there will be treatments that will be better than chemo?
6: Oh, absolutely. We are moving in that direction. And the cell and gene therapy is exactly that. What we are doing currently at Presogen is really taking your own cells, immune cells, and modifying them and returning them back to you. So the safety the, is much more favorable. The toxicity is much less because it's not chemo that kills across. This is designed to only kill the tumor cells and nothing else. And I think this is why Precogen is bringing the field of cell engine therapy to the next level.
3: Who else is doing this? Like, who else is doing kind of what there you
6: There are a number of companies that they are doing the classical CARTs, but this is exactly... CAR
3: is C-A-R-T. Yes. CAR-T. CAR-T. And, and, and what is, is that?
6: chimeric antigen receptor T cells. These are modified T cells. However, the way it's done, it's done in a classical fashion with the centralized uh, manufacturing, which uh, takes almost between a month to two months. The cost of these CAR T's are close to 450 to half a million dollars. What we have done is, do that in the completely differentiated way than everyone else. And the Prestigen is the only company that has this technology currently. And we do that at the clean room of a hospital without experts. All right,
3: so all I know about biotechs is it's a binary. It either works and a stock goes up through the roof or it doesn't and it goes to zero. What's the, what's the milepost for your company for that
6: So in the very near future, in 2024, we are moving our first uh, adenoverse, gorilla adenoverse platform in RRP patient, rare disease patient, which FDA has given us the BLA. And we will be commercializing this. So that would be the first. And that's why I think we have a great opportunity and very exciting year in 2024. And to your point, the stocks, definitely has been under pressure all the stocks have been including yep. Precigen. however we are confident that 2024 with the new drug that we are bringing forward and already with accelerated approval from fda we are going to bring value to our patients as well as to right. our fascinating
3: investors. story as always i mean you know so many you uh, know f- uh, fronts on this fight against cancer helen sabzaveri ceo presigen is the company, it is P-G-E-N is the ticker. Uh, with some uh, new techniques and new uh, therapeutics. Car-T. car car. We're learning something. We're learning something.
6: the platform which addresses both oncology in HPV cancers and infectious diseases.
5: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg. Bloomberg
3: 11:30. Uh, let's bring in our next guest, Brian Stelter, uh, special correspondent for Vanity Fair. You know him from CNN. He was a, a longtime correspondent there at CNN, uh, producer of one of my favorite TV shows, which I just finished, uh, The Morning Show. That's based upon his book. Uh, he's got a top new top of the book. morning, top of the morning, right? He's got a new book out. This boy, this guy's prolific. Network of Lies: The Epic Saga of Fox News. Donald Trump and the Battle for American Democracy. Brian Stelter joins us. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here. Kind of what did you learn in your reporting for your new book here? This is territory that you're familiar with.
7: I had to write it because the last time I wrote a book about Fox, it was mostly anonymously sourced and you all know that's how it has to be. Sometimes some sources insist on confidentiality. They won't go on the record. But then three years later, when Dominion was suing Fox News and Dominion was able to obtain all of those emails and text messages from inside Fox, I felt like all of my anonymous sources were now speaking (laughs) on the record. Of course, it wasn't their choice. You know, they were forced onto the record through the legal process, through the document discovery process. But there were so many revealing messages, including emails with Rupert Murdoch, that I thought, hey, someone's gotta turn this into a book.
2: So what's your take on where Fox News goes now? I mean, post Tucker Carlson, um, uh, you know, ahead of a new election season, they've got a new CEO. There's so many changes that have happened in the last, yeah. I don't know, year, six months to a year. Uh, what happens to Fox?
7: That's right. We talked after Tucker Carlson was ousted on the air, then Rupert Murdoch deciding to step aside. It actually takes effect this week. Uh, Yesterday at News Corp, tomorrow at Fox Corp, he becomes chairman emeritus, and he's really elevating his son Lachlan, making it even more clear that Lachlan is the future of these companies. Uh, What's the future of Fox? Well, in the book, I quoted an insider saying Lachlan just wants to minimize headaches and maximize profits. I think that's (laughs) what we see in the Tucker Carlson firing. He wants to minimize those headaches, and then he wants to Try to figure out how to make as much as they can out of these declining cable businesses, while also investing in Tubi and in Fox Nation and other streaming ventures. Of course, Fox is one of these subscale media players. It's not uh, nothing like Netflix or Disney. So I think you know, in the future, anything could happen. I think the most likely scenario is we're going to see another attempt to recombine News Corp and Fox Corp, but maybe not for another year or so. So, uh,
3: Brian, what's in some of this? What are some of the the uh, new issues that you uh, kind of unfounded or are founded here uh, in this new book?
7: Yeah. You know, what I get at is, is uh, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch's role within this company and this network, Fox News, that is the dominant player within the Republican Party. And what I found is that the times when Rupert and Lachlan should have stepped in and been more involved, they weren't. They were laid back. They were kind of uh, letting others do do the dirty work. Remember in Succession when Lucas Matson says he's hiring a pain sponge? Well, I came to realize that's what the Murdochs really do in, in real life. You know, no wonder the show was was so uh, heavily reliant on the Murdoch story they have their own pain sponges you know to clean up the messes uh, and so that that i found was interesting when reading these emails and text messages that they keep their you know they have they have plausible deniability sometimes with some of these scandals and lawsuits and of course these lawsuits are ongoing we know dominion settled but smartmatic another voting company is suing fox there are a lot of shareholder lawsuits and other defamation lawsuits it is really it's really remarkable that here we are talking at the end of 2023 and there's still so much litigation about the last presidential election
2: What do you think about, I mean, we've recently heard um, that Donald Trump was dead set against leaving the White House. And, um, you know, more and more uh, is coming to light, but it continues to shock me that he has such a strong hold on, you know, a place like Fox uh, or the U.S. Congress. Um, how, How does that how does he continue to have that kind of strength?
7: I think it has a lot to do with the rewriting of January 6th. Uh, and I discovered this as I read through all these emails and texts that after January 6th, Rupert Murdoch said very clearly, we're going to make Trump a non-person. We are pivoting away from Trump. Uh, he was told by his uh, number two that, that Sean Hannity is ready to lead the 75 million Trump voters away from Trump. So clearly there was an attempt to make Trump a non-person, but it didn't last. It didn't last. So why didn't it last? Why was Trump able to get back to center stage? Why was he replatformed? Well, I argue it's because Pete Riley like Tucker Carlson rewrote the story of January 6 to say it wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't a riot. It was just a tourist visit gone bad. That it actually wasn't that big a deal. That, hey, maybe the feds were involved. Maybe the government plants were in the crowd, uh, ginning up the protesters. Basically, by presenting a conspiracy theory version of January 6, I think it helped to absolve Trump in the minds of his fans, to absolve Trump in the minds of Fox's viewers. And thus, now here we are, Trump's still the dominant figure in the primary.
3: Brian, what role do you expect Fox News to play in this upcoming presidential election vis-a-vis the former President Trump, who presumably is the Republican nominee?
7: Well, look, the first two GOP debates of the season both went to Fox. Uh, Now there's going to be a few more debates, but without Trump, they're becoming less and less important. Uh, Trump is uh, in a little bit of a standoff with Fox. He thinks he's more powerful than Fox. You know, they go back and forth because, you know, they're like uh, you know, it's like, a, I don't know if it's a buddy comedy or it's a horror movie, but it's a situation where they're, they're they're kind of both battling each other at all times. But at the end of the day, what matters most is that the audience comes home and Trump comes home. He will come home to Fox uh, because they have the same interest. They, they want to see Democrats defeated. So even though there's lots of talk about Trump cl- trashing Rupert Murdoch, complaining about Fox, I don't think that'll matter in a general election. I think what'll matter is that Fox still has a stranglehold on a giant piece of the right in the United States
2: does CNN want a piece of that I mean they did a town hall with Donald Trump they've made some moves that uh media critics have questioned as you know what's what's CNN doing
7: Well, I I think right now, CNN is trying to report the truth as loudly and clearly as possible. And I think they've been excelling with coverage of the war between Israel and Hamas. I think there was, you know, an effort last year, and I think an understandable effort by David Zaslav and others to uh, try to figure out how to appeal to everybody, appeal to conservatives as well as liberals and moderates. But I think we have to make a distinction between conservatives and MAGA loyalists, okay? It's the same distinction Biden makes in his speeches between Republicans, who he's known for decades, versus MAGA Republicans, who seem to want to burn it all down. Down. You're not going to be able, in my view, to get through to uh, Trump loyalists who have been told for almost a decade now that the real news is fake. So if that's the goal, the strategy at CNN, that wasn't going to work. But I don't think that was the strategy. I think the strategy was and, and maybe to some extent still is to try to show that it's real news coverage, not the fake news that Trump lied about. And, you know, that's the problem for a lot of these brands, a lot of these media brands. They have, uh, they're up against a disinformation campaign. So I have a lot of sympathy for the CNNs and the NBCs of the world that are trying to get the word out that they're actually just doing doing their jobs, reporting what's in the world, but they're up against this kind of this hurricane of noise and lies from Donald Trump.
2: Brian, What uh, what what's happened to Tucker Carlson? Um, do we know kind of how that mm. has turned out yet? Because for a while it seemed like there were a lot of MAGA Republicans that were gonna switch away from Fox and go to, I don't know yeah. what he's doing, but um, has he still got a big following?
7: He doesn't quite know what he's doing yet either, uh, but he's making a lot of videos on the site formerly known as Twitter, and he's reportedly raising money and making ad deals so he can grow that into a real media company. I think he has big ambitions because he wants revenge against Fox. He wants to show Fox who's boss, but right now his platform has diminished. He's not making as much of an impact. He's not as influential. Yes, he still has a fan base, but it goes to show once again that the, the, the machine is bigger than the parts. The parts are replaceable. Fox News is the platform that matters Matters, not the individual host. And gosh, for whether you love it or hate it, that's a credit to Rupert Murdoch for making that investment almost 30 years ago. Yep, and
3: I, I always say what made the Fox network was Bart and Homer Simpson. So uh, that's kind of when they finally <laughs> turned the corner. Brian Stelter, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate getting a few minutes of your time. Brian Stelter, uh, he's a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, uh, formerly a uh, correspondent for uh, CNN and producer of Apple TV's The Morning Show,
5: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
3: All right, let's uh, switch gears here. Let's get to our next guest, uh, Laura Martin. She's a managing director, senior media and internet analyst at Needham. She's based out in Los Angeles, right in the heart of Hollywood, does all that stuff out there. Uh, She joins us via Zoom. Hey, Laura, I want to start with Disney here. You know, Bob Iger's been back now, I don't know, a couple of years, a year and a half, something like that. What do we know about where he wants to take this company?
8: You know, I think on the part, we have two companies here now. One is Parks and it's on a tear at record high margins really a big cash flow generator, and he's gonna invest $60 billion in that business. <laughs> so that, well, that business has proven its growth tra- you know, trajectory, and he's gonna invest in driving that growth longer, fine. I think what what Nelson Peltz is arguing about, and I think where, I think the long-term media analysts are on this is, I don't think he's actually shown us that he can grow the, um, now that streaming sort of hit maturity, and it's still never made money, can the content business grow, Paul? And if not, why is he keeping all these people? Like, it's okay if a business, he doesn't have a dividend. So it's okay if a business doesn't grow, if you cut your people and you raise your dividend, that's called a GARP stock. That's called a value stock. Okay. But right now he's investing like the content business is growth. And I think Wall Street is unclear that the content business is still a growth business.
3: All right. So, I mean, I, it's almost sacrilege to ask this question, but you can make the call here. Like if i'm an investment banker i'm a media m a banker boy there's a lot of pieces here do i try yeah. to break this company up and see if i can get better value in the marketplace for the pieces
8: you know a lot of these ceos don't want to relinquish actual control of an asset because that's how they judge their like power is how many employees are reporting to them i do like the idea paul of spinning off 10 percent of parks um, because I think parks really is a growth engine. I think you get a much higher valuation for parks if somebody could buy it alone, away from the content assets where there are a lot more questions. And in creating that security, but still keeping it for tax consolidation and teach you know, keeping control over it, you would get a higher value for the aggregate Disney shareholder.
2: What's gonna happen to ESPN?
5: Good
8: question. Um, well, lots of speculation here. I do, you know, Bob. Tiger on the call did say he's looking for people or companies that it can enhance his distribution, give him more content rights and, or give him more marketing um, like gravitas. So he what doesn't really the NFL? need money. Yeah. Well, I like the NFL as an idea a lot or the NBA. Cause like the NBA rights, NFL, he's got locked up for a decade, so he doesn't really need the NFL right now, but I do like the NBA, which is coming up and they're saying that the, that the cost of the MBA might go up by $4 billion. And mm-hmm. Bob Iger has promised us an extra $2 billion of cash flow next year. Well, if the MBA rights go up by $4 billion and he pays that, he's gonna wipe out that promise and make his free cash flow even worse. So I like that idea as a strategy. Look, MBA will give you a little less cash than you want, but we'll give you 10% of ESPN and we'll sign a 10 year deal. That's actually a better deal for the MBA if you ask me. Interesting. Hey, so.
3: Laura, I want to get your opinion on something. When you and I were coming up in the business, the media moguls were Ted Turner, you know, Sumner Redstone, Rupert Murdoch. Is David Zaslav the new media mogul
2: for the kids out there today, coming up in the business? Is he it? Dude, did you read the New York Times I story did. on him this morning? I, I did. Ripping on Jeff Zucker for having tears in his eyes. <laughs> yes. After Zucker was like, "I needed you as a friend." Yep. I mean, that guy sounds pretty harsh. <laughs> Do you want a friend like that? I don't know. I don't know. What Do you want to a boss like that? <laughs> exactly. Do you want an employee like that? Would you want to be in the same room as a person like that? I mean, I That's don't know throat. if it's true. I'm just reading the time story, but, you know, it's rough. So, Laura, tell um, us
8: about Zaslav. So, I will. I'm going to answer your question, though. I think the new media mogul is Jeff Bezos, who now no yeah. longer runs Amazon. The guy who started Amazon Prime is a media mogul. I-, I think it is possible it is one of the few streaming services that survives because it's got... Amazon e-commerce, yeah, right. <laughs> and Amazon Music and Amazon and MGM's library. You know, I think the new definition of media mogul—it's too small. David Zesloff is too small. The company he runs is too small. But isn't <laughs> I,
2: Amazon I, kind of an also ran to Apple because Amazon Music? What I use Apple Music. You know, Amazon Prime. Yes, I have it, but Apple TV is much um, sexier, right? Uh, why? Why isn't Apple the the big media mogul?
8: Oh, well, I guess from a media mogul point of view, I mean, somebody who runs around Hollywood. Does okay. Deal. Okay. That's a good oh, point. No. Sorry.
2: I guess it's you know, not Tim Cook.
8: Mogul doesn't just mean you re- run a business. Like there's like literally when I think of, I do cover Apple. When I think of them, I think of these, you know, brainiac guys designing beautiful pieces of hardware where services is sort of the add on to keep their hardware selling. None of them feel like moguls to me. Literally the opposite of moguls. Yep. Yep. Like down to earth, engineers with beautiful design characteristics. None of that is about having lunch at Spago's.
2: <laughs> Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos is ripped. Yes, you know? he is. He's he got is. a trainer coming every day. Does he? Is that how he does it? I him? mean, I don't know. He looks like he does.
3: So, um, Laura, talk to us about Meta. You got you have been kind of yeah. underperform on the stock. It's just been ripping. What do you think's going on yeah. there with the stock? Zuckerberg's works in
2: good shape too. Yeah, he is.
3: So what do you think is yeah, happening over true. at Meta and maybe what the street might be missing or maybe, you know, what what you're seeing?
8: Yeah. So I think, I think near term, he cut a lot of people. Last year, he cut 25% of his labor force, which, as you know, Paul, destroys morale for an enterprise. So he cut 25% of his people and he had anniversary the negative comps. Remember, he said when iOS changed its privacy policy, when Apple changed its privacy policy, he was gonna lose 10 billion dollars in revenue. He did that for a year. So his revenue went negative for a year. So he's back to positive revenue growth and acceleratingly positive revenue growth. And he has 25% fewer employees. So right now, that stock's on a tear this year because of those fundamentals in the near term. Our cell is predicated on three things. One, he doesn't control his content or his distribution. His content is you is user-generated content, and they're moving to TikTok and they're taking their clients to TikTok and they add revenues following them to TikTok. So the competitive situation in his core business is really bad and the regulators are late. So they think he's a monopolist. So they're going after him for his market position three years ago. So he has regulatory headaches that cost a fortune and distract the whole enterprise. So he's got regulatory hassles of being a monopolist when really TikTok is chipping away at his base. Um, and then the metaverse spending is coming back next year. And now he has a whole new spending category, which is called generative AI, which should be a huge revenue generator, except he's giving away his large language model. He's not charging for it. So here's another big cost like center called generative AI. And he's making his everything he does there. He's giving away in an open, in an open large language model. So, you know, none of this is good fundamental outlook even though this year I'm getting really killed my rating's wrong this year.
3: All right, so what what are you what are you really spending your time on these days? Is it is it Apple? Where where do you think your clients should be thinking about it for the next 1 to 2 years because boy, you take a look at some of the traditional media companies that you and I grew up with. That's a tough call right now.
8: Yeah, unfortunately, I think <clears throat> I think all these media companies have become too small. I mean, when you have somebody like Apple generating 90 billion a year, and Google, meaning Alphabet, generating 60 billion dollars a year of free cash flow. That's like bigger than the market cap of like a bunch of these companies combined. So I think the answer is the old media companies need to merge into these global distribution juggernauts. Um, they need to get bought by them. The problem is, you know, Washington D.C. with Democrats at the head of every agency, it's very tough to get acquisitions done. So what these media companies need to be doing is shrinking, meaning laying off people, keep increasing their dividend and they have become value plays. They are no longer growth businesses.
3: Is there is there a shakeout here? Is there still maybe consolidation of media company A, media company B getting together last gasp?
8: Yeah, I mean I think I think it's I think there's a widely almost a consensus rumor in a sense that Paramount's too small needs to get bought. It owns CBS, so it cannot be bought by NBC, which is Comcast. It cannot be bought by ABC, which is the Walt Disney Company. So, uh, and it can't be bought by Fox, which owns Fox. So, really, David Zaslov or um, you know, I guess like Amazon could buy it or something. But I think I think there's sort of a consensus that probably Warner Brothers Discovery buys um, Paramount because it can own. It doesn't own a broadcaster already.
3: Right. All right, Laura, thanks so much for taking the time. always appreciate getting some of your time. Laura Martin, she's a managing director, senior media and internet analyst at Needham & Company. Uh, She's been based out on the West Coast uh, her entire career, so she's kind of right in the backyard of kind of what's happening out there in the world.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can
3: always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
9: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders